have noticed uh, that Pastor Scott was supposed to preach this Sunday. Uh, Pastor Scott was exposed to COVID this week. So he, uh, we had a conversation Tuesday afternoon and, and he said, given the timetables and there's an equation you can type into the website, CDC website, he said, I don't know if I will be uh, able to, to be present um, if, if, the, if I end up having COVID. And even if not, um, because of what the CDC recommends, he said, I, I would have to preach in a mask. Uh, and it says I shouldn't be in crowded places, so I would come, preach, and then leave. He said, that's not good for our congregation. So he said, would you do it? And I said, no. <laughs> because, because I wanted to hear you preach on this. We had heard from him uh, weeks prior. This is what God is starting to say to Pastor Scott. And I was like, okay, I'm just so excited to sit and to receive, perhaps perhaps to walk the road with these people, uh, this Emmaus road. I'm so, I'm so looking forward to this. So at first I told him, no, <laughs> you'll figure out how to do this. And then, and then, uh, and then there was, there was a discourse and, and, uh, and God revealed <laughs> uh, that this is the best, most wise thing. So I want to tell you that I am disappointed to preach this morning because I wish it was Pastor Scott, not disappointed in the word that God has for us, but I was certainly hungry to hear uh, what Pastor Scott had to say. Here's what's going to happen this morning. We uh, read the second half of the Emmaus encounter is what I'd like to call it. This is when the resurrected Jesus shows up along the way to two people who are in a conversation. These two people, they remain anonymous throughout the story. We don't know who they are, but we do know that they are connected with Jesus. They knew about who Jesus was. We also know that they're connected with Jesus's disciples. Uh, and so this matters for the story. And as we uh, move through the text, there are two things that I want us uh, to pay attention to today. And that is what happens at the table and when Jesus leaves. The table and absence. We're going to look at those together. So if you would uh, join me uh, in, in opening your Bibles, we are in Luke 24. There are Bibles in the pews in front of you, the chairs in front of you. You might have to go fishing a little bit, but um, but you can do it. Uh, Luke 24, we are going to start in verse 28 and go through 35, the second half of that Emmaus encounter. Feel free to make a lot of sounds trying to get there in your Bible. Don't be ashamed. I had this handy-dandy ribbon in mine just this time. All right, Luke 24, starting in verse 28. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem, where they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, it is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened along the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. 
the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. I want to set this up a little bit, just give you a little context here. Uh, when we read this story, it is still Resurrection Sunday. This is, is Jesus, not even 24 hours ago, rose from the dead. And we are getting to see Jesus along the way. Luke chapter 24 starts out uh, on the first day of the week, very early in the morning. But by the time we get to chapter 28, we are, we are more now like very late on the first day of the week, that, that very first Resurrection Sunday. And it was Sunday evening after a very tumultuous weekend. And they, having uh, these two, having experienced all this turmoil, all this confusion, they go on a walk to Emmaus. We don't know why they're walking to Emmaus. This could have been their home. Uh, it could have been an escape. But we do know that, that Emmaus was a, a, not a day's walk, but about half a day's walk. 11 kilometers, about seven miles from Jerusalem. It would have taken them maybe two to three hours at a, at a comfortable pace. Just a quick side note, a small plug. Uh, did you know this global 6K you heard about uh, in the announcements? It's like over half uh, of the distance between Jerusalem to Emmaus. Uh, and so we get to do this uh, on May 21st, 21st, 21st. Um, so if you haven't signed up yet, sign up. Um, those of us who haven't signed up yet um, need to do that. So I promise I will. But if you want to join us, it'll be fun to journey together just like, just like these two did. So we don't know why they're going to Emmaus, but we do know that they have experienced this long, grueling weekend. And they are most likely reeling uh, mentally, emotionally. They have no idea what it is what they're supposed to do with all of this information, all of this experience that they've had over the last few days. I can imagine that feeling on their feet, right? Seven miles, that's a long way. Their feet are tired, they're aching, but they're just one foot after the other. I wonder if all those feelings match the feelings in their soul. Tired, aching, just doing the next thing that they need to do, but they're not quite sure what it is as they move along. They were nearing the end of their journey, getting close uh, to Emmaus, and it seemed like the resurrected Jesus, resurrected not even 24 hours, resurrected Jesus is going to continue on beyond Emmaus to another town. But, but get, did you get it, what, what happened? They begged him to stay. They begged him to stay. I love this part because oftentimes I think that, that with God, we can't change God's mind about things. And here we experience that the resurrected Jesus uh, is begged to stay. And what does Jesus do? He stays with them. They wanted Jesus to be present with them. Why would anyone want the life-transforming experience of the Holy Spirit, uh, Jesus, in their life? Why would they want that to go away? Why would they want Jesus to go away? Jesus changes his mind about his travel plans. And in response to a very earnest request by these two, uh, he changes his plans in order to, to meet their desire. He wasn't even just meeting needs. He was meeting desires. I can imagine that after everything that they went through, everything that was so upending, it was so comforting 
to have a, a presence with them. Someone who, who could help them make sense of what was going on. By the way, they still don't know it's Jesus when they ask him to stay. They have no idea. But they just want someone with them. They're uncomfortable. They needed someone to help them sift through all of the things that are swirling in their brains. This presence, they hoped, if it stayed present long enough, would, would ease their minds, would calm their spirits, would allow them to get back to a tranquil place. Presence, specifically the presence of Jesus, is significant. And Jesus changes his mind and stays with them. And in the staying, something happens. All right, these travelers, they're tired, they're hungry, and so they sit down to the table. And there's something really significant that happens in the Gospel of Luke anytime Jesus encounters food. I love this about Jesus. He knows about our souls and our tummies, okay? Uh, regularly, what happens when Jesus encounters food is there's a, a role reversal, Instead of Jesus being a guest at the table so often, Jesus becomes the host of that table, the host of that meal, uh, the host of the whole gathering. Something then is revealed in his presence at the table. In Luke uh, 24, 30, right here, it says, uh, when he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it and began to give it to them. Okay, so there's a, there's a rhythm here. He uh, took bread, he gave thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them. This is not the first time that Jesus does this. Uh, if you want, if your Bible is available to you, you can turn to Luke uh, chapter 9, verse 16. I have a sticky note in my Bible because I was prepared. You weren't prepared, so I'm going to give you some time. Luke 9, uh, verse 16. This is the feeding of the multitude. There was no food and only uh, two, two fish and five loaves of bread were given to Jesus. And note what happens, Luke 9, 16. Taking the five loaves and two fish and looking up to, uh, to heaven, he gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them to distribute. You notice a bit of a rhythm. Okay, now uh, turn with me now to Luke 22, verse 19. Oh. My sticky note failed me. I put it in the wrong place. Luke 20, no, I didn't. I was right. Luke 22, verse 19. Uh, this is at the Last Supper. It says, and he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them. You've heard this, right? This is the third time now. Jesus resurrected that he does this. The third time that he takes bread, breaks it, uh, give, takes bread, gives thanks, breaks it, and then gives it to his disciples. There's a repetition here. So on the third time that Jesus does this, by the way, the third day since Jesus uh, uh, was crucified and resurrected, which was very significant in the biblical story, uh, we are hearing this repetition again. But Jesus is different than Jesus was in chapter 9 or chapter 12 of Luke because Jesus has resurrected from the dead, and yet it's the same. It's the same, but different. 
the best thing, the thing I wonder most about this encounter is what Jesus' mannerisms were like. Did he do something the other two times that the people around him started to notice? If you ever want to get a good laugh out of me, uh, you can uh, imitate the mannerisms of someone that I know quite well. It's a game that I grew up playing around the dinner table or perhaps beside the dinner table. And we like to call it, um, uh, guess who walked like this. And so we would each take turns uh, walking. I almost want to ask you to, I'm not, okay. I won't do that, but it would be really great. Maybe some other time. We'll plan that. Uh, so we would impersonate the way that people would walk, and then we would have to guess. Uh, we would do this with, with my siblings, and we would walk like the teachers that we knew, and then we would have to guess. Or, or we would, um, uh, my dad has quite specific mannerisms, uh, and so we would imitate my dad, and we would just roar laughing. Um, I have offered this legacy onto my children, too. And I'm embarrassed to say that they now make fun of me and my mannerisms, which I feel like is only, it's just retribution. I understand. I wonder now what Jesus's resurrected mannerisms were. I wonder if he always wiped his hands a certain way before he took the bread or if his eyes looked a certain way. I wonder if Jesus shifted in his seat or held his mouth a certain way. Whatever it was that Sunday night, that resurrection Sunday night, the familiar rhythm of breaking bread and and the familiar rhythm of Jesus's mannerisms, whatever it was, they saw something that matched what was stored in their memory. And it all started to make sense. You see, they recognized Jesus because Jesus made the decision to stay, to be present, to repeat the pattern of the things that he had done before with them. They recognized him. You may have caught what that passage said. It says their eyes were open. Yes, seeing Jesus requires that our eyes physically and metaphorically are open. And seeing Jesus requires that our memory engages our experiences of the past to help us interpret what we are aware of in the present. Like Pastor Paul preached uh, last week, the true work of, of seeing, of recognizing happens when we examine the past so that we might understand the present. You heard last week the story of Sankofa. Examining the past to understand what's happening in the present. Perhaps, too, it is the symbol of Jesus' recognized resurrection. It's only true. The resurrection only makes sense when we look back to see who it was, who it is that really resurrected. I thought about our, our church, this Newport community. I think that we have been very careful, very intentional uh, in our ministries to do some work of looking back, not just in the ministries of racial reconciliation and justice, but also in examining the, the hurts and the pains and the traumas that this congregation and community has experienced. There is something about examining those things, not dwelling on them, but looking at them carefully 
in order to recognize first the resurrection that has taken place here among us, but also the things that we might still carry with us. There is something about recognizing the things we've grown accustomed to that do not belong in our ever-forming journey of faith. And then there is something about recognizing the things that help us to stay faithful along the road towards resurrection, towards reconciliation, towards a more whole community. Part of the work of the church is to do the same sacred things over and over again, while also ridding ourselves of the unsacred things that we've found ourselves going to again and again. And so we do this thing called offer a, a worship service on Sunday mornings so that week after week after week, you, me, we might be invited to recognize the presence of God. We sing the same songs over and over and over again, not so, so that we just like uh, um, indoctrinate them into your brain, but so that you won't forget. So that you won't forget when it comes time to sing a song that, you, that, 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 you, that your brain can't even believe. You might actually remember the words and allow your soul to sing them. We come to the communion table time and time again so that we might recognize Jesus in the breaking of bread and in the reception of the cup. This repetition serves us. It's a gift to us. Jesus did the same thing over and over and over again as a gift to us, not to bore us, but to continue to invite us to something. And this repetition is a gift, yes, for us adults, but it is definitely a gift to children. You see, uh, part of seeing Jesus' recognition or, or the work of recognizing past experiences. And so what we do with children in our church is a gift and a responsibility so that they might remember again and again and again, that they might be able to look back when they are older and have, have had experiences where Jesus was with them. This is a, a huge part of why we invite our children back with us uh, to receive communion on our communion Sundays. It's not that we're interested in giving them a snack. I mean, th those things are barely even a snack. Uh, we're, not, we're not just here so that, that it could be a, an extra thing along with their goldfishies and then their lunch. We are interested in, in inviting them to recognize Jesus. Perhaps they even help us recognize Jesus. I love when they come in here and they run. I mean, they're not, they don't walk. They run back in here. There's something about the joy of joining us in this. Maybe they don't even realize it. But there's something about the joy of them joining us back in that means something for all of us. Not just them, not just the young families in our congregation. All of us. Children belong at the table. Jesus did not place limits on this table. Every time Jesus invited people to eat, he didn't demand that people uh, have a recognition of Jesus. Note that in the text, these people did not even recognize Jesus as he invited them. 
Uh, Jesus does not demand a profession of faith for people to come to the table. Every single time that Jesus breaks bread with people, uh, they are brought into further faith. They may have been way on the outskirts, maybe even turned away from God entirely. And Jesus says, well, just kind of have a little, some bread. That's all. And something happens with them. Every time that Jesus breaks bread with people, they are brought further into faith. And all he asks us to do, those of us who do love Jesus, is that we would eat and remember and proclaim. Eat, remember, proclaim. You see, kids can do this. They can eat. They can remember. They can talk about it. Youth can do this. They can eat. They can remember. They can proclaim. Sinners and saints can do this. The hopeless can do this. Doubters can do this. Those who we've previously excluded from the table can do this. Those who feel ashamed, have been outcast, maligned, rejected, quieted, accused, provoked, dismembered, they can do this. Eat, remember, proclaim. Listen, if Judas could be at the table that night uh, when Jesus offered this first communion feast that day before the crucifixion that the, just hours before he decided to betray jesus if jesus says you come and you eat enjoy this meal take eat it's broken it's offered then anyone can receive this meal and jesus says the same thing to us that he said to judas and all his other disciples you see jesus Jesus is consistent. And this repetition, it's not there to bore us. It's there to remind us again and again and again that he is the host of the table and that there is no expectation for you to be perfect, for you to do anything right, for you to even profess faith in order for you to come. I do want you to know that this table is always open to you, always because Jesus invites you. I will never get in the way of Jesus' invitation for you. If it's possible that things can be revealed uh, in, in, in the deepest parts of our souls and our lives here at this table, then I want everyone everywhere to get a chance to eat here. If Jesus himself is made known in the breaking of bread, then I want everyone to watch the bread being broken, to eat that bread. After Jesus breaks the bread, and, and, and something happens, this part really gets me. He breaks the bread, these, these guys, their eyes are opened, and then, poof, Jesus disappears. And, and when Hannah talked about the stuff in Scripture that bothers you a little bit, this is really getting to me. And so if you uh, would be willing to kind of struggle with this with me, I would really appreciate it. Poof. Bread broken. 
their eyes realize something and then poof. And maybe it wasn't a poof. Maybe it was more like a whoosh or a zip or a plop. I don't know. Um, I've never experienced the resurrected Jesus with me and then gone in physical form. But we do know that he was gone. There was something about Jesus changing his mind to stay present to the people. But there is something very, very significant about Jesus' absence here. This one gets me. Because you see, I regularly pray for the presence of God to to be made known in circumstances. Like, I equate the presence of God with, with the anointing of God. I equate the presence of God with, oh, we're doing something right. And I equate that when God is absent, that must mean we're doing something wrong. Or when God is absent from a place, that that, that means God is no longer uh, working or amidst it. But here we are. Jesus made known in the bread, and then poof, or poof, he's gone. Here we don't have divine presence. Here we have divine absence. Dutch Catholic priest Henry Nouwen uh, writes about the ministry of absence. That in a world that equates presence with something uh, that means that it's a a real thing, if it's present, that means it's real, Uh, Henry Nouwen writes that the work of the people who love Jesus is to, to be present, certainly, yes, but to also allow for absence. This was the rhythm of Jesus' work and in the world, and it can be the work of ours, too. He makes note, uh, Henry Nowen makes note, that the ministry of absence is only a ministry after there has been presence. And that without presence first, the ministry of absence would only be emptiness. So a ministry of absence after presence is what creates a space for God's spirit, for the Holy Spirit to fill the space. Now one calls this creative withdrawal. Creative withdrawal. You see, when Jesus poofs or whizzes or pops away in in disappearance, uh, he does not leave the people empty. If you remember what it says, uh, his absence allows them to consider the inner workings of their souls. Only in his absence are they able to confer with one another. What just happened? Did you feel that? Do you feel that? They say, were not our hearts burning within us when he read the scripture? They would have never known if Jesus stayed there. They would have never connected with one another. How did that go? There is something about that feeling, that question, what just happened to us? Did you, did you feel that? Are you feeling that? I think about the last two years, maybe even more than that, where we have experienced a variety of absences. We've been away from our community, our congregation. We've separated from our family. We've had to isolate from one another. All those Sunday mornings online, all those Zoom meetings, we required the internet to make connections in our absences. And I don't know about you, but I really struggled 
with having to, to dig deep into my soul to the things I truly believe about, about God, about Christian community, about even myself, just my even my, even, my beingness. I really had to wonder, what is it that I truly believe? What is it that I truly know? What, what, with all of these familiar repetitions that are now gone, what do I do? Who am I? Who is Jesus? Does the, does the church even matter? You see, uh, the familiar repetitions of, of going to church, of sharing in community, that, you know, the smell of church, just every church has a smell. The smell of church. We'll define what that is later. But the smell of church, the taste of the bread and, and the cup, the sound of amplified voices. I hadn't heard a, a voice through a microphone in a long time. Seeing people's eyes, not pixelated or granulated, like up close. You know, like people have eyelashes. <laughs> Perhaps even seeing Jesus in sharing story. That was gone for a long time. That regular rhythm was really out of whack. And it makes sense that our bodies still might be recovering from these things. Even this morning, I want to think, I want to honor those who are absent. Pastor Scott is uh, absent from the pulpit this morning, and I so wish that he would have been the one to, to offer this conversation to us. Um, and I wish that you would have been a part of the conversation that we had this week and trying to discern what was best for this space. He, uh, I'm impressed. I'm impressed by him. When we were having this conversation, he uh, didn't ask questions of his own capability or his desire to preach a sermon that he had really prepared for well. He asked this question, what is best for the congregation? What do they need? He didn't ask what was best for him or, or what did he want. Rather, what is it that these people need? What we experience in Pastor Scott's absence, I pray, is the humility of Christ. He modeled that. In thinking about those who are also absent, I think of Pastor David. I think about Pastor David often. He should be here. And a lot of his ministry was a ministry of absence. It was creative. It was necessary withdrawal. But it was creative withdrawal as well. And he was faithful to that creative withdrawal. And I still think there are times where I'll just sit or be or, or in a conversation. And I recognize his ministry is still happening here. There's something about it. It's a mystery to me. But his ministry is still happening here. Though he is absent. What we experience in the absence of Jesus is not grief. But the people here actually experienced a fire in their souls. The fire of the Spirit of God alive. 
I am most certain that that is the ministry of Pastor David. And I am certain that, that in, in a short period, it's also the ministry that Pastor Scott offered you this morning. I don't think I'd want to trade the fire in my soul, uh, the spirit of God alive and at work in me for anything else. And I am certain that most of the journey that we are on with Jesus is contending with Jesus's absence. Because we didn't get to see Jesus in resurrected form. I think some of the greatest questions of our faith center on what we do when Jesus is or when Jesus seems absent. And Jesus, in his absence, leaves us with a fire in our soul. And so in this weird mystery, holding all of these funky things together, Jesus himself, though not physically present with us, is very present with us at the table. Jesus is equipping us here at this table for both to receive his presence, but also to be nourished in his absence. And Jesus himself reassures us with the repetition of words with the repetition of, of mannerisms, of, of tastes, of smells. And so here at this table, our souls are tended to. They are invited to come alive with the Spirit of God. And so as we transition to Jesus' table, will you pray with me? God, I pray that you would help us lean into your absence as we partake of the bread that has promised presence. And it's confusing, and we trust you. So God, as your voice, uh, just as you did when you sat down with those disciples and, and you broke bread and you revealed something, we do pray that our eyes would be ready to see something. And that if you don't, that we might even believe that your absence has something to say. God, I thank you that always you invite us here and that you always inspire our faith here, that you always speak love and tenderness and hope here. So that be true today, too. Not because anyone said anything right, but because you are here. And in that truth, we might find faith. 